0: You're listening to Business Extra coming from the Nationals Newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm your host, Kelsey Warner. I'm joined today by Marilyn Zakour, founder and CEO at Cosmic Centaurs, an organizational development company based in Dubai that's focused on helping businesses build better workplaces. Marilyn, hi, thanks for being here. Hi, thanks. I'm thrilled to be here. So, organizational development and building better workplaces, it sounds very nice. And I'm curious if we can just take a step back, tell us a bit more about Cosmic Centaurs and who you work with and why they come to you for help.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think at the crux of it, the idea is that when you're when you're leading an organization uh, and you're trying to get it to perform, you know, you have a strategy, you have a vision about how you want to bring value to the world. Um, and you look at your organization and you see that it's just not delivering on what you're hoping it could, right? There's a lot of leaders will focus on what I call the market side, So we need to fix the product, the brand, the value proposition, they'll talk to customers, they'll see what's wrong and how they can improve it. And that's absolutely necessary. But a lot of leaders sometimes forget that what also needs to be looked at and taken care of is how are we setting up our organization and our people to deliver on this strategy? Um, You know, we always say good companies focus on the customers but great companies and sustainable companies focus on both their customer and their organization and their employees. And so organizational development is really about helping leaders who are looking at their companies and saying, we could be more and we could do more, to identify what is it that's broken? Do you need better processes? Do you have the right people in place? Are you clear on your why and your strategy? Do people know where you're headed? Um, and take care of all of these different employee touch points so that you can build a great experience for your employees who in turn will deliver, you know, if if you look at companies with engaged employees, you're going to look at uh, increase, 44% increased productivity. You're going to look at 23% increased profitability. So there is a real business impact to
0: building great organizations. Okay. If we were talking in 2019, you and I would have a very cute impact conversation about culture, values, KPIs. And here in 2023, that's not happening. It feels like the workplace is in flux. We're in a moment of what does the workplace even mean (laughs) in 2023? Um, Building a strong culture feels ever more important, but yet kind of less and less clear uh, than it's ever been. So, talk to us a little bit about what are some of the themes that are coming up for you when you talk to clients. What are they thinking about? What are the challenges?
1: Yeah, look, I think, you know, to your point, every breakpoint is a moment of both great opportunity and great crisis. And I think the pandemic brought that breakpoint to the workplace, be it through the flexible work discussion and be it through the resignation piece. Uh, The retention piece. I think the economic crisis that's coming. You know, leaders and people have been hit with one crisis after the next, Um, and they've had to deal with quite a lot over the past few years. And and that's really showing up. And to your point, it's created this kind of polarized discussion of the companies that do prioritize employee engagement and culture, and those that have completely given up on it. And that's a little bit of what we hear about in the news, right? Like we'll either see. You know, this company forced everybody back to the office and nobody cares right. versus that my company. way or the highway. Yeah. But we also have seen some beautiful stars emerge of companies that are really, you know, doubling down on their efforts behind employee engagement now. I really like to remind myself and my clients that none of these problems are new. Uh, if every decade, you can go back and you will find stories of this or that. Maybe you know, covering different topics. It could have been diversity uh, at some point. It could have been you know something else. Um, But this is an age old problem, which is very reassuring for me, because despite, you know, when we try to put it in as if it was new, it's it's a bit, it panics us, right? Like, oh, my God, how am I going to deal with this? This is a completely new paradigm, but actually it isn't. And the solutions and the research around how to build great cultures, how to build engaged workforces have been around forever. And actually, if you look at the data, I think what is really important for everybody to remember is that. What people really want is they want a good job. You know, when we look at what is the highest predictor of employee retention or engagement, it's not, you know, the ping pong tables and the, you know, the fluff that we hear about around like the Google cultures of the world. It's actually, they want a good job with good roles and responsibilities, scope of control, the ability to make adult independent decisions. And if they have that, then they are happy. So it's really about going back to the fundamentals of why companies exist, which is to break down a big complex task into smaller pieces and give people the ability to create value in the world. And if we start from that place, we don't have to be so worried about what the trend
0: is or what's happening in the media today. So you're saying it's about the work. It's really about focusing on what is the work.
1: Exactly. Because that's the highest predictor of people being satisfied, people wanting to stay in their jobs, and people creating value for the organization is they want to have
0: a great job. Meaningful work. So when I think about um, the CEOs who have said, you know, you have to come back five days a week, get back into the office, my way or the highway, the CEOs have said, come back two days a week, come back, what you can adopt a digital nomad lifestyle, all sorts of different offerings on the table depending on who your leadership is. But for you and the clients you work with, when a company's trying to assess actually the right path to take for itself on this, because I don't expect you to necessarily make a values judgment on hybrid work or remote work or any of that, you probably would let companies decide for themselves. But I would guess that you help guide them in that decision, Right. How how do you help them assess what's going to make sense for them in their modern workplace?
1: Yeah, exactly. Actually, just on the topic of flexibility for a second, and then I'll answer your question. What people want more than location flexibility is they want time flexibility. And the reason for that, like if you look at the numbers, that's the most important type of flexibility that people care about. So they will be a lot more flexible about, oh, having to come to the office or not, if they know that they can be late that day because they have to take their kid to a kindergarten event, or they can leave at a certain moment because they have a personal errand that they need to run. So I think you know, we tend to polarize this discussion around location flexibility, but there are other forms of flexibility that people want. And in general, it's all about treating people like well-intentioned adults, right? So it, the two days, three days, four days, it's about do you believe that your employees are there to do their best work every day? Um, do you trust that they will do what's right for the organization and therefore you no longer have to exert control? But in general, in the way that we support leaders to make these decisions specifically for their companies, I think that, as you say, every company has, first of all, its own strategy and its own environment that it's operating within. So we always start there. Like, what's the business goal? What are you trying to accomplish? It has its own culture. You know, even when when Elon Musk told Tesla employees, everybody back in the office, you know, I don't want to work for that company, but there are people who will be thrilled to be there, right? So I think every company is entitled to its own culture and its own ways of doing things. And it's going back to those fundamentals. What are we trying to accomplish? Who are we and how do we try to do that? And therefore, what is the right decision for us in terms of where we want to hire people, where they're going to work from? And does that allow us to accomplish our business goals or is it going to get in the way of it? So I think Coming back to those fundamentals of strategy first, culture first, and everything else is something laddering up to that. Is this going to allow us to accomplish our business goals? And does it sit well with who we are and what we say about our values? If the answer is yes to both those things, you're good to go, even if that means bringing everybody back every day.
0: I want to talk to you a little bit about um, incentives and how employees are compensated. We're in a strange economic moment affordability Mm. is a huge issue. Interest rates are up. Real estate is pricey. Groceries are expensive. At the same time, we've been threatened a recession for months now, which has has yet to materialize, but but the fear is there. So there's a few different things that are going on, but employees are really in a space right now where they need to be well compensated in order to be able to afford their lives, really. And so how can companies think about compensation How can companies think about compensation beyond just the paycheck in order to retain employees during this kind of uncertain period?
1: Look, I think that, you know, beyond the paycheck, there's everything around your benefits and your policies. On the one hand, there's what we give you, but there's also how we set up your life so that it's more affordable for you. So if you take flexible work, for example, we know that Uh, Working from home saves employees um, thousands of dollars every year from commute and cost of food in the environment where they work. So, for example, affording them something like that allows them to reduce their costs. But we also know that we can offer them, you know, companies dish out a lot of money on benefits that employees never use, right? They kind of have these one-size-fits-all policies. They're well-intentioned, but let's say that you know, a lot of companies, for example, in the UAE have a policy that will support with tuition. But what of those employees that don't have children, suddenly they're being penalized for being different and not falling within the policies and benefits structure. So I think that what makes sense here is if as a company, you're already kind of budgeting for a certain amount of benefits for your employees, trying to do something that is More personalized to subgroups in your company can be an easy way to just reorient that uh, budget and make sure that people get access to what they need. So, for a parent, that may be tuition, but for a single person, that may be investment in stock or that may be also just money to be able to spend on things that they care about personally or going to the gym, which is going to contribute to their well being, right? And so, I think really trying to create subgroups of employees and catering to them with your benefits is probably the right approach. Um, within the same budget that you've already thought about.
0: You are the former CMO of EMAR, the big Dubai property developer. But three years ago, you chose to take the leap and start your own business.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I want to ask you just about that decision to leave a really traditional corporate environment and strike out on your own. When did you know it was the right moment for you to take that leap?
1: Um, Well, I'll start by saying that I spent the first 10 years of my career in the startup and tech world uh, and only spent about a couple of years in the corporate world, mostly because I was curious to see how companies operate at scale. But I always knew that I would go back to maybe my roots, which is um, to run smaller organizations, because I find joy in knowing everybody's first name in my team. Um, however, I have to say, it wasn't really a decision. It was more of a perfect storm. So um, when I joined Amar, I was the CMO for a year. And then I was the CEO of the Dubai Opera, actually, up until the pandemic. And then the pandemic started and the opera was shut down temporarily and I was fired. And so, understandably, I would have done the same thing. It made no sense to keep me around. And so I went home. And after about three days and I was you know, on lockdown with my husband and my best friend, I was like, great. There is absolutely no reason for me to go look for another job. I was, um, you know, I could, you know, I had enough savings that I didn't have to worry about, you know, next month. So I could take a bit of a risk. And I thought, this is it. Now's the time. I've always been saying that I want to do this. And here's the perfect storm where I can actually give this a shot. No one's really going to be upset if I fail uh, because I'm trying something in a very complex environment. So why not just do it? And I kind of went back to what I think motivated me as a person across all of my jobs, because I've been in tech, I've been in real estate, I've been in performing arts. You look at that and you're like, I don't understand this person's career. But I think across the board, I've always been incompetent at what I do. I was an incompetent Dubai, you know, (laughs) opera CEO. Uh, It's quite reassuring to be incompetent, because actually you realize that as a leader, you don't have to be the expert at anything. There were a lot of amazingly competent people around me. My job was actually to build a great organization, to give strategic direction, good processes, allow people to have a scope of control and decision making, and then check in often enough and guide them into how they could do better. And so across my career, this has been the truth of, you know, when I succeeded, it's because I did that. And that's why I started Cosmic Centres to help other leaders
0: hopefully do the same thing. So how did you land your first client?
1: Wow. I think so. I had two first clients, I want to say. One was a recommendation from a friend. And actually, I think going public with it very early. So I actually recorded a podcast about five days after getting fired, announcing that I had gotten fired. I thought that it would be helpful for others to hear it because it was clear that that was going to happen to a lot of other people. And there was no reason to feel shame. And because I did that, it had the positive effect of letting everybody know that I was available. Um, And so I had friends who would... Yeah, I mean, I didn't plan it honestly. I think it was um, it was a post-rationalizing now that mm-hmm. really helped. And so the the first couple of clients, you know, just friends that were like, "Oh, wow, she's free now, great, Marilyn, can you please work on this?" And then the first client where I felt like we did, you know, core cosmic centers work was actually uh, just me uh, having the courage to ask for help. So a friend of mine from business school reached out, and he's like, "Okay, so I see you're doing this company. Like, how can I help you?" And I said, actually, I'm looking for a first client that would allow me to test out this methodology that I've invented um, on their teams. And I thought he might like introduce me to a couple other companies or, you know, and he said, what about my company? I'm like, "Okay, let's do it. And so um, I think also, you know, having the courage to ask and accept help. Uh, was what led me to have that real client, which for me was really the core of what we did. It wasn't just like Marilyn's skill set, but Cosmic Centaur's offering. Um, And they just let us experiment with their team for the next three to four months. I'm happy to say the experiment was quite positive for them, you know, better engagement, clear processes, uh, improved internal comms, and so on. But um but it was really just uh, putting myself out there and and trusting that the that something would come back something um, you know meaningful would come back from it
0: when you talk about methodology can you just give us a brief overview of what the methodology actually is and what you charge clients for sure so
1: the methodology that we created is a methodology called the omnichannel organization and essentially it's about when a leader comes to us and says okay I think my company can do better. I think my teams can do better. Help me understand what isn't working. So our methodology allows us to have a holistic understanding of the organization by looking at five key dimensions, culture, process, systems, um, people, and structure. And so we have our own survey methodology, but we also do you know, a lot of interviews, observation days. So we really take a lot from design thinking methodologies and apply it to trying to understand the organization. So we come back and we say, okay, we've spoken to X people. We've sent out the survey. And from our results, we can see that, for example, your org structure needs to be um, reshuffled because it's not helping you deliver. Or your processes are badly designed and they're getting in the way of people doing their work. Or people don't feel really aligned to your culture. They don't understand the company's values and they don't have a shared language for it. Or, um, you know, your technology isn't well set up and it's slowing people down. So the idea is we have 15 different touch points that we analyze. And then we come back and we say, these are the touch points that are broken in your organization. And here's how we can help you fix them. So together with the leader, their teams and oftentimes the employees themselves, we analyze the root cause of why these are broken, and then we come up with a plan. And in that sense, I say also that that's when we stop being consultants, and we start being managers because we never just stop at the plan we actually do all of the change management and project management implementation with them so if we say your processes are broken we'll roll our sleeves up and redocument them if we say you need to fix your internal comms we'll do their internal comms strategy we'll set up their calendar
0: we'll help them with the first few you know videos oh. or town hall wow this sounds like a typical women- <laughs> woman led business are you <laughs> so then you'll actually do the work Yes. I was a
1: manager for my entire career before I was a consultant. So I understand that the pain point isn't coming up with smart ideas. Leaders know what their organizations need, but they're too busy cutting wood to sharpen the axe. And so what we do also is hold them accountable to what they want to change and just hold their hand a little bit. It doesn't take long, a couple of months.
0: And you actually do it. So change is really, really hard. So in order to hold them accountable to change, you actually do implement the things that you're recommending
1: yes because the the way that we think about our mission is that we want to improve um the lives of hundreds of people by creating better organizations and so if all we do is leave them with a with a slide deck we know 99% nothing's going to get done it's going to be forgotten two years from now their next consultant will find it somewhere on a google drive and be like oh this wasn't bad what happened with it oh nothing mm-hmm. that's our worst nightmare so because our end goal is really to improve the lives of people in workplaces we don't leave until we feel like we've made enough change
0: happen. I do feel like I need to ask you the chat GPT of it all and its kind of influence on the workplace. How much are you seeing employers thinking about rescaling employees for the AI age? Are you seeing it yet or are we still too early?
1: When it comes to the AI age, I mean, the way you want to think about this is like the introduction of PCs a few decades ago, right? So I am already seeing employers that are very mindful about this. Of course, there are the employers that are seeing this as an opportunity to downsize their workforce. And that creates a lot of fear and anxiety in people. But I also see employers looking at well amazing how can I use this to truly accelerate my workforce how can I use this to stop having people do low level tasks that they could very easily outsource to technology and AI and have them spend more time on strategic and creative work um, and I'm seeing you know a lot of great examples of people also learning in public so you can on LinkedIn I have quite a few people that I follow um, actually just yesterday the CEO of Oyster posted about you know how are how is everybody else doing this for their organization and was animating a discussion around this so i am seeing leaders also willing to learn in public around this topic and personally actually at cosmic centers at the end of uh, this month on may 29th we always organize a quarterly grow day is what we call it so we pick a theme that we all want to learn something about and we don't have client meetings we don't look at our email we just spend our day learning and our q2 grow day is actually going to be focused around how do we, as a small six person team, leverage AI so that we can be, you know faster so that we can make sure that the humans are spending time on things that only humans can do, um, including you know as a consulting company, it's a long hour job. you know sometimes we work 10, 12, 14, 14 hours a day. Well how do we use AI to minimize the number of times where we have to do that and just create more balance in our lives? Um, so I think if you're not thinking mindfully about this, it's as if you were ignoring the personal computer revolution from like four decades ago.
0: So since 2018, you've also hosted the Who Run the World podcast, where you tell stories of women in leadership. And so this is a very broad question, but I'm curious what you've actually learned from your reporting in that podcast.
1: Wow, I mean, we've covered—we're past our hundredth episode, uh, so we've covered quite a lot of topics on on our podcast. But I think that. Um, you know, what I've learned, and, and it's going to sound like a real cliche, but I was so surprised the first few times I heard this, like I saw incredible female leaders who underestimated themselves, never negotiated their salaries, you know, always accepted to be in the position where they were, you know, they could have been promoted and done an amazing job at the next one, but they were okay with where they were. And I think a lot of, What I try and do, whether it's in my mentoring or through the podcast or, um, you know, when people ask me for advice, is I just try to get women to be bolder because they don't want to take risks on behalf of others. Women are very protective. Um, They want to make sure that, you know, like if you take someone like me, I could have spent another three years without hiring a team. I hired someone the first time I got a client and that was really risky. It was risky for me. It was risky for them. You know, they were joining someone with no track record. But because of my reporting, I've really learned that we always undersell ourselves. And so I try to push women to be just that little bit extra bolder, um, take that one additional risk, because without that, you can't scale or grow. And I've seen that with women who are entrepreneurs, who are in corporate, you know, no matter where they are, I just want to see them be a little bit more courageous and bold. And that's what I've often, you know, um, been. when we hear these stories on the podcast, I'm like, We can do better, you know, and so I try to put my money where my mouth is there.
0: We can do better if we're supported by employers who will help us do better, right? So when you're doing the work at Cosmic Centaurs, women in the workplace as a issue, are you doing anything to support that as a kind of special interest cause? Is there anything policy wise companies can be doing when we talk about retention and creating good corporate culture for women in particular? Because I've talked to dozens of corporate leaders on this podcast over the last few years, and the women in the workplace question remains really unanswered in my mind.
1: That's a great question. Look, I think there are a few things to be done in in this order. I think the first thing is to first be certain that diversity is going to add value to a business. It sounds really like, um, I don't know what to say, businessy to say that, but because if people don't actually believe, if they think it's a gimmick, they will never really do it but if they understand that actually having broader diversity of gender and other things like experience industry actually has net positive you know impact on revenue and performance of organizations and they can measure it that's how you make sure that these are long term sustainable things and not just a you know a pink washing experience then you have to measure So you have to measure where you are on your diversity. Where are women in the workforce? Are they getting promoted across the different levels of hierarchy? You know, oftentimes what companies will find is they have great kind of gender balance at the bottom, but the higher up you go, um, the less women are part of the discussions. Um, And then you want to start taking, even if it's tiny baby steps every day, to improve those conditions from mentoring programs, one-on-ones, et cetera, but also I know this one's controversial, I'm a firm believer in positive discrimination. And the reason for that is that, yes, I know that it increases kind of that dichotomy between the genders, People will present arguments towards, yeah, but if women, you know, get promoted because of a quota, then did they really deserve the the job? Uh, And I'm going to summarize that debate with one sentence that I read once that I thought was like spot on. And it said, um, you know, we will know that there is true gender equality when incompetent women get promoted into a job. (laughs) So I know this sounds a bit militant and feminist, but I really believe that positive discrimination creates opportunity. It creates role models. And role models are what is essential for the next generation of female leaders to feel empowered um, and and to really think that they can access whatever whatever position or role they want. And without that tiny little step of positive discrimination, it's going to take another few hundred years at best. So I think that that's a step that really serves to accelerate. But I know it's a controversial one.
0: You know, I'm I'm kind of here for it, Marilyn. Good to talk to you. Fun to talk to you. Incompetence, but showing up anyway, I think, is the, is the main takeaway. Uh, keep fighting the good fight and good to meet you.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: That's all for today. All that's left is to thank our production team and you for listening. See you next week.